We'll be in Psalm 51, as Ray just prayed this morning, a psalm of confession or a penitential psalm, as it's been termed or called, since it describes the, the uh, repentance, the thorough repentance of King David. We'll look at that this morning. I think because of the story behind this psalm, it's really become one of the most well-known psalms and one that I know many of us run to often. And regularly, when we're burdened down and, and weighed down by our own sin, it's a, it's a glorious place for us to go, God's kindness to us. As I often do when I will teach or preach, I'll go and look at uh, one of Charles Spurgeon's sermons and, and, and how he handled the text and the passage, you know, the well-known pastor from London in the, the mid to late 19th century. And, and I usually walk away very encouraged in reading uh, Charles Spurgeon and his, his sermon on the text, um, very helped typically by that exercise, but this time it was a little different. Let me, let me just read uh, what Spurgeon had to say about Psalm 51. He says, Such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion. So far, so good. Yes, agree with that. But, commented on, or preached on? Ah, where is he who having attempted it can do anything other than blush at his defeat? <laughs> Thank you, Charles. That stung a little bit, especially that I read that Thursday morning. Uh, the worship prep was just about to go out, a little too late to, to change. But I didn't put him down yet. I kept reading, and he actually then quoted an ancient commentator there in, in his commentary, and he said this, This psalm is the brightest gem in the whole book and contains instructions so large and so precious, doctrine so glorious that the tongue of angels could not do justice to its full development. It wasn't getting much better for me. I I put him down and uh, and Ray was complaining about his text last week. But um, obviously Spurgeon is is just highlighting the, the rich an inexhaustible glory that we see in this psalm. Just drowning with, with um, meditations for us to consider, flooding this psalm. And so it's our grace, it's, it's God's kindness to us just to meditate for a few minutes to, together this morning on this text. I won't pretend to be able to, to cover everything, but, but by God's Spirit, we can give thanks that, that we will reap rich and even eternal reward just from the time that we're able to, to consider this this morning. So I just encourage you to have that prayer in mind as we look at this, as we read through it. I'm going to read through the whole psalm. I just invite you to follow along in your text in Psalm 51. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. An emotional passage, really. A passage that leaves no one outside of its application. There are none of us here today that escape the weight of ongoing sin. None of us. And then the attendant guilt and even despair that often comes with that. This story is more our story than many of us care to admit. And this psalm is meant for each of us to ponder this morning and to ponder humbly. So to help us do that this morning and and to help organize our thoughts as we consider this text, I want for us to consider four main points of emphasis that I think we see in this psalm. And those points of emphasis relate to the truths that King David came to recognize in his own life and then to record for God's people, for us. So number one, if you're taking notes, David recognized who his sin was against. Number two, David recognized what his sin meant. Third, he recognized what he desperately needed. And then finally, David recognized what he could graciously anticipate. First of all, David recognized who his sin was against. And and this seems like a fairly obvious point to most of us here, that his sin was against God. Of course his sin was against God. But David makes it clear, and in this psalm, emphasizes throughout that what caused him distress in his soul, what caused him such angst was the recognition that he was guilty before God. He had sinned and defied him. It's over 20 times in this chapter that he specifically addresses God, either by his proper name or by pronoun, as the one that he's offended. It's how he begins his poem, Have mercy on me, O God. And you see that throughout the song as you scan through it. David here is making the not-so-subtle point that mankind is accountable to God. How we live before God does matter. David's life, as he admits, is not just about himself. He comes to realize this. He was rightly troubled by his sin before God. 
think perhaps this is seen most clearly in verse 4. Look, look there in verse 4. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You only? It should probably raise some, some questions in our mind, especially if you're familiar with the background of this story. What provides the context for, for David even writing this confession? David had clearly sinned against more than just God. Psalm 51 is, is one of the very few psalms where we can actually pinpoint exactly why it was written. We know the backdrop. Many of the psalms aren't such. We, we, don't, we, may, we may have a general idea, and, and most of them really have no idea, but this one is clear. It's referring to David and his, his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and then his subsequent murder of her husband, Uriah. If we had time, we could read through that account, a very detailed account in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. You, you might do that this afternoon. And if you do, you'll see that David had sinned greatly against others in this story. But David recognized, and it's teaching us even now, that our sin is ultimately, primarily, and overwhelmingly against one person. It's against God. Horizontal sin must be addressed. Scriptures make that abundantly clear. But it also makes clear that every sin is first and foremost vertical. David says, against you, you only have I sinned. He puts on hold dealing with the the human carnage that he had caused. And it it was carnage, inexcusable and, and damaging to many. But in humility, David recognized and he prayed, Oh God, against you I have sinned. You only have done what is evil in your sight. We ought to pray for that sensitivity. We ought to pray for that recognition. Isn't it too often the case when we first sin or or when we get caught in a sin, that we immediately consider how it makes us look or even how it makes us feel. Or we think, if this gets out, what are, what are people going to think of me? Even when we address sin appropriately in, in dealing with God and, and with people, are we more grieved because we have disappointed others and harmed our reputation with them? Are we grieved because God has been grieved? Because we betrayed Him. This was a recognition that, that God graciously led David to realize. Even for a man chosen and, and blessed by God in the way that David was, this realization did not come naturally for David. Naturally, he sought to cover up his sin, remember? He sought to hide it and plot and, and even ignore his sin. Remember, it was, it, was, it was God who in his compassion sent Nathan to awaken David to his indifference. His indifference to his sin against God. And, and we read that David heard the word and that it pierced his hardened heart. 
And his very first words then to Nathan, recorded in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. David recognized who his sin was against, that it was first and foremost and ultimately against God. And it rightly gripped him. He knew the truth, as as one author puts it, all sin, no matter how small we think it to be, is a belittling of God. At its very core, sin is a personal rejection of our Creator. Do we consider that? The one who gives us breath. I think in light of this first truth, we should consider at least a couple of questions. First of all, very simply, do we grieve for our sin knowing that God is grieved? Does it bother us because we've defied God? Do you consider your sins this past week as against Him? Or have we become casual about them, presuming upon God's grace to cover them? We shouldn't lose sight that God is gracious and and more gracious than, than even we are sinful, right? But this should not make us comfortable with our sin. Men, even as, as we are unfaithful to our wives with, with our eyes, or ladies, as, as you are, are, are disrespectful perhaps to your husband in your response to him, or, or maybe talking about him with others. Children, as you deceive your parents, even in, in small ways, or, or as any of us disregard God's law in, in a number of ways, consider that we disregard Him. We defy Him. That needs to factor into our thinking. Because ultimately, if we don't see our sin against God, we, we won't see our need for God. Before we move on to the second point, I just want to point out these, these three little words in the, in the middle of verse 4. I think they're worth just pointing out here even in passing. They further make this point. He says the evil that was done was done in his sight. That is in God's sight. God God sees. God knows. This should have served as a a deterrent for David. In the same way that it served as a deterrent for for Joseph, who you remember when, when tempted by Potiphar's wife, He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? May God help us to ponder that. Our sin is done before Him, every one of them, and against Him. And so first of all, in dealing with that sin, David recognized who his sin was against. Secondly, and a very much related point to this, David recognized what that sin meant. He recognized what his sin meant, that he was guilty. That he was in trouble. And as one of God's children, it began weighing on him. In fact, more than just seeing his sin, David, and and we can see from this chapter that David was feeling his sin. He he felt it. In fact, he says in his own words that that it was consuming him. It had become pervasive. Look at verse 3. I know my transgressions 
and my sin is ever before me. He couldn't get away from it. Verse 8 and verse 12, he says, it's robbed me of my joy. It's broken my bones, he says. He was at odds with, with God, and God was making him aware of that. In his grace, God was making him aware of that. He could no longer ignore it. Just like it's hard to ignore a broken bone, David felt his sin and he knew what it meant. The tone of this whole chapter gives us this sense. Again, even from the the first words out of his mouth, have mercy on me, O God. This is a cry from a desperate man. It's not the normal way that you begin a poem or a song, right? God in his mercy allowed David to feel his need for mercy. God is like that. If you feel and and sense and begin to know when you have sinned, leading you to cry out to God, be thankful for that. Thank Him. God could have allowed David to, to continue in his sin. At this point in the narrative, it looked like David had gotten away with murder, literally. People of God, we can give thanks that God is faithful to convict. And beyond that, to forgive and and even to take our punishment on himself. He's faithful. He says he's going to, to complete the work. And that is what God does here for David. As you compare the two, the two texts, as you compare 2 Samuel with Psalm 51, uh, David's poem here, you, you see the stark change in David. This is a different man from the one who we see working so hard in 2 Samuel to cover and to hide and to plot. The deception, as you read that, the deception and, and the conniving is surprising. Even though it shouldn't be, it's, it's surprising when you read that about David as he, as he plots to cover his sin. But here, David comes out of hiding. He's heard the word. Notice all of the, the personal pronouns. Just look at verses 1 through 5 again. Notice the, the personal pronouns he uses. And, and also notice all the words that he stacks up to name what his sin is. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil, so that you're justified in your words, you're blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. David says here in short, I am guilty. I am needy. He's making that point. He's trying to say something with the the repetition of me and my. It's no one else's fault, he says. I'm the guilty one. He doesn't excuse his sin. He doesn't ignore his sin. He owns it. In fact, in verse 5, if you heard there, he says his sin runs even deeper than simply what he's done. More than that, it's it's part of who he is. He was a sinner even before he had committed any. 
admits in this verse that he was born with, with an innate disease, a broken heart, and he calls it sin. In these just few short verses, it's so interesting. He stacks up and almost exhausts the entire Old Testament vocabulary for sin. Did you notice that? He uses transgressions and iniquity and sin and evil. Each word with a, with a little different nuance, a little different emphasis. And David says he's guilty of all of them. If you're a parent here this morning, don't you, don't you long for your child to just own their wrong? Wouldn't that be refreshing? Not to defend or, or blame Blame a sibling or, or a classmate, not to downplay it, excuse it, or even just shade it a little bit in their favor. In all of those strategies that, that, that we all use, it's being argued subtly. It's being argued that the problem isn't in me. It's outside of me. It, it's being argued, whether we realize it or not, we're, we're really not as needy for God's mercy as God says that I am. We long for our children to do what David does here, and, and this is what our Heavenly Father longs for us to do. It's my sin. It, it runs deep. I need rescued. This model is here for us this morning to see. How do you respond when someone brings up a fault or a sin of yours? What's your first reaction when you're confronted with your sin, either by someone here or someone else or or through the Word? What's What's your first reaction? Do we own it? Do we ponder our sin? We think about what it means. Consider this. Do we ever take on the posture that we see of the publican who who with head bowed pled, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Remember, it was Jesus who said, he's the one who goes home justified. The one who humbles himself, owning his sin. God lifts up. David recognized who his sin was against. And David recognized what his sin meant. Third, David recognized what he desperately needed. We're tipped off to this by what he asks for. I think if if you note his specific petitions here that he makes very plain in the text, we see what he knew he needed. Let me just run through these requests for you to get a sense of of David's longing. We won't be able to stop on on each of them for long, but but listen to what he asks for in this text. And for those who like grammar, look at the verbs. Just notice those this morning. We've already seen in verse 1, he says, have mercy, blot out. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly, cleanse me. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and again, wash me, he says. Verse 8, let me rejoice again. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, renew my spirit. 
cast me not away, restore me, uphold me, deliver me, cleanse me. You get the point, right? David knew he was helpless. This is a man who recognizes that he's desperately needy. He doesn't want to leave anything out. He sees he's helpless when it comes to his sin. Just with these pleas, he recognized, I can't overcome this on my own. I need mercy. As one scholar observes, the prayer here, or the psalm, he says, begins, continues, and concludes in the asking mode. David was crying out for rescue, cleansing, deliverance from himself and from what he had done. The guilt and the separation that he felt from God was overwhelming him as God brought conviction. And so from the very beginning to the end of this psalm, he approaches God as a beggar beseeching him for mercy. David was not afraid to run to him. He was not afraid to admit that that he needed rescue. So he goes to God with his sin. He holds nothing back in this psalm and he gives us permission to do the same thing, to hold nothing back in going to God. Have you gone to him lately with this intensity? Do we go to him with this earnestness? Concern over our sin? it affect us like this? I think when you stop to consider just for a moment what David is, is really asking here, these are bold requests that he makes. Considering his sin, he, he asks God to wipe out what he's done. He says to blot it, to, to scrub it, to, to erase his slate is what he's asking. He says to purge him with hyssop. This is a reference, you may think back to Exodus and Leviticus where we, where we see this language, this language of, of cleansing where a blood sacrifice would essentially, with this word, de-sin or purify one for worship. David says, God, I, I know I have sinned, but will you, will you de-sin me? Wipe it away and, and will you look at me as if I had not defied you even though I have? David is crying out, really, for a Savior. Just notice a a couple more of these bold requests. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Give me a new heart, he says. David is not merely, I think we should consider this, David is is not merely asking for deliverance from this one-time incident in his life of which he was guilty. David is asking for a heart that is now clean, and oriented now toward God. He's saying, don't don't let me continue to walk in this path of of defying you and of of ignoring you, of forgetting you. Grant Grant me a brand new nature. We see hints here of the the new covenant when God would replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. And David comes to this realization early that this is what he needs. It's his only hope to overcome sin. 
It's his only hope to please God if, if God would create within him a new heart. It's interesting, this, this word that he uses, create, in verse 10. That's the same word that he uses back in Genesis when he refers to creating the, the heavens and the earth. And every time this particular verb is used in the Bible, it is never without God as its subject. Only God can do this. Only God can create. David knows only God can create within him a new heart. And so David asks him for that. He wants a supernatural reorientation away from himself and and now to God. Change me at the deepest level. He says, I don't don't want to continue dishonoring you with my life. Is not that a picture of genuine repentance to desire that? This is a model for us to go to in our sin. He acknowledges, again, with this request, that the struggle runs deeper than simply acts of sinning. It goes to the very heart of who we are. Our heart steers our behavior. And so our behavior won't change unless God changes our heart. Unless God gives us new desires and and new loves. David realizes this. By God's grace, David started to become awakened to this. Repentance is more than confessing our bad behavior or acknowledging wrongdoing, although that's, that's clearly involved. Repentance involves a spirit-initiated longing for change at the deepest level, heart change, complete transformation as to what we love, which leads us then to live for someone other than ourselves. Just a moment further on this, this picture of repentance. I think it's filled out even further in verses 16 and 17. I have to point them out to you. Look at verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David is not here disparaging the sacrificial system that had been set in place for the people of God there in the the Old Covenant. In fact, he's going to uphold that system in verses 17 and 18, the end of the chapter. But, But he is disparaging merely external sacrifice without an inner awareness and a brokenness over sin. He says it very plainly. The sacrifices that God desires is a broken spirit. It's internal. God desires a heart that is humbled over sin. And that that transcends any system. This morning, God, God desires for us to see our sin in such a way that we not merely offer a, a token acknowledgement as we, as we say our prayers. That doesn't get the picture here. The sacrifice that God desires from us, from His people, is that we see and that we feel our sin as idolatry against Him. And that we are deeply bothered by it. 
That's what he's saying here. We are disturbed by our often daily routine of, of thoughtlessness toward God. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Just, just think for a moment here. What does a contrite heart look like for us in our experience? Do we work to see our sin for what it really is? I think in this passage we have to ask, does our response to our sin evidence that we understand its seriousness? This passage tells us the truth about sin and what we desperately need because of it. Before we consider our our final point, just just consider for a minute, as we look back from this side of Jesus, as we look back at the cross, how much clearer should we now realize that our greatest need is Jesus? How much more should we realize that, that Jesus has met our greatest need? The New Testament makes this very clear that the writer of Hebrews really picks up some of this language that we see in, in, uh, in Psalm 51. Could read several chapters of it, but just, just listen. Even the language of purging and, and hyssop in Hebrews chapter 9, it, it shows us where this prayer is pointing us. It shows us where Psalm 51 is, is directing our eyes. Hebrews 9, but when Christ appeared. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing for us an eternal redemption, purifying, he says, or washing or cleansing our conscience from dead works. He is what we desperately need. Sin, as we know, separates from a holy God, but the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. In fact, one author says, every word of this penitential psalm cries out for Jesus as he alone can forgive sin. So we're called even this morning to turn to him in faith for full cleansing and forgiveness. Because that is what he provides. So David recognized who his sin was against. He recognized what his sin meant and what he desperately needed. And and finally, David recognized what he could anticipate. He recognized what he could expect, what he could look forward to because of God's mercy. Psalm 51 is is a hymn of longing. It's a hymn of anticipation. David's pleas throughout these verses were accompanied by a hope. And even though his requests seemed extreme, they actually weren't because of who he was asking. They weren't extreme because of of who was being asked. God loves to pardon sin through his son. Aren't you grateful for that this morning? God loves to pardon through his son. Listen to how the the prophet Micah puts it. 
in Micah 7 as he asks this rhetorical question. Listen to what he says about God. He says, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He delights in this. And that truth about God forms the basis for David's confession. It forms the the basis for David's entire prayer of Psalm 51. It it leads him to to the first thing out of his mouth in verse 1 to be able to say, have mercy on me, O God. How? On what basis? According to your steadfast love. This is why he can ask, This is why he can anticipate that that he will be forgiven, that his his prayer and his cry is going to be heard. It's your covenant love, God. It's your promised mercy to your people. David knows, and he says, you've made yourself known to us, and you've promised to love us and forgive us and, and to provide a Savior for us, and so God, have mercy. According to your steadfast love, have mercy. goes on further to say there in verse 1, according to your abundant mercy. He's not simply a merciful God. He's an abundantly merciful God. What David is saying is here is, God, your, your mercy can't be exhausted. It's, it's abundant. So be, because you are an overly generous God with your mercy, I come to you seeking and anticipating forgiveness and cleansing and washing, and creating, and restoring all of these requests because this is what you do, God. It's who He is for those who come to Him. It's who He is. God's abundance of compassion opens up the possibility for abundant cleansing. David knew very well the oft-repeated verse and phrase in Exodus 34 where for the first time the Lord says this about himself to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving, here's those three words, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Not sweeping sin under the rug, right? He still says in this, the guilty would still need to be punished for God to remain just. He would be unjust to overlook David's heinous crimes and to ignore the guilty. But God becomes the guilty. And in his costly mercy, forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. David knew this to be true about God, which leads him to make such bold requests and to look forward to full pardon. Look at what he anticipates, just just briefly. Look at what he anticipates. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I, I will be whiter than snow. 
Verses 8 and 12, he anticipates the, the return of joy, the bones that have been crushed by sin he knew would be bound up. In fact, he, he penned that even earlier. The Lord heals the brokenhearted and, and binds up their wounds. David comforts himself with that. He knows this truth about God and he, he anticipates being healed. Not only that, but, but in verse 13, Look at verse 13. He anticipates using his experience as, as dreadful as it was. He, he, he anticipates using this to, to be used to bring others to God. To minister to others even. He says, starting in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He looks forward to God using this experience, even of sin in his life, to bless other sinners. If you think about it, he's been doing that with this text for thousands of years. As we even think for a few moments on David's sin and David's Savior. There are ways that some of you now can can minister to people within this body because of what you have gone through in the past. God can use even our brokenness and our harmful choices to to work together for His good. In fact, it's, it's only sinners that God uses to minister to sinners. So one author author asks this important question, are you stewarding well your story of grace? Obviously this requires wisdom, but but God can take our brokenness to minister to others. David anticipates this grace and and more. A couple just just one more. Look at verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You, you can hear the hope in these verses. There's an anticipation of, of salvation, an anticipation of, of being able to sing once again and, and not just on the outside. He says, Lord, open my lips, stir within my heart that I will truly be able to declare your praise from the heart. He looks forward to singing with this renewed heart. Imagine, weighed down and and burdened by sin for for months. He's longing and looking forward to that release where his his tongue and lips are, are loosed to again praise him with a free heart. A heart that's been unburdened by sin. We, we know this experience, right? Some of you felt that this morning. We come in weighed down by sin and, and crushed by, by that weight and feeling of guilt, struggling to believe the gospel. We know that spot. It's difficult to sing aloud of God's righteousness. But repentance and forgiveness that David describes here. It leads us back to worship in a way that brings honor to God. Not just mouthing, but overflowing from a heart that has been shown such mercy.
David anticipated this renewal and forgiveness. He anticipated being clean once again, and so should we as we look to the Savior for mercy. According to this psalm, David recognized who his sin was against. He recognized what that sin meant and and what he needed. He recognized what he could anticipate because of God's mercy. As we meditate on these truths today, as we we leave here, God, God calls for our open and honest repentance before him. Perhaps for the very first time this morning, crying out to God, have mercy on me, O God. According to the abundant mercy in Jesus Christ, blot out my transgressions. Concealment of sin leads to misery and eventually to death. But humble admission to the one who can blot it out leads to life eternal. As believers this morning, this this text reminds us we are far too casual with our sin. But it also reminds us that God is far more gracious than we know. And so let's go to him. Consider his mercy and let's go to him. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do come to you thanking you for this word that you have given to us. Lord, it pierces our heart and it, and it gives us a desire to come to you for pardon. Lord, would you create in, in, within us, Lord, a new heart that desires your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.